The history of humanity has been marked by its technological advances. The discovery of fire two million years ago, the invention of the wheel in 3500 BC, all the way to the Industrial Revolution in the 18th century. Throughout the times, we've sought to make our lives easier. Though many argue some of those advancements have proven destructive. In modern times, our ambition for a better life has taken us to the age of information technology, programming, and artificial intelligence. AI gives machines the ability to do more. They can think for themselves, learn our preferences and behaviors, communicate with us, suggest alternatives, and even do things only humans once did. Alexa, order more dog food. AI has slowly become an essential part of our life. Its use in social media has brought us closer with our families and friends, and it's proven valuable at home and at work. But some say there's another, more sinister side to artificial intelligence. Ethiopian-American computer scientist Timnit Gebru has been one of the most critical voices against the unethical use of AI. She's been vocal about issues around bias, inclusion, diversity, fairness and responsibility within the digital space. Google asked her to co-lead its unit focused on ethical artificial intelligence. But six weeks later, the tech giant fired her after she criticized the company's lucrative AI work. Gebru, considered one of the 100 most influential people of 2022 by Time magazine, has now launched an independent research institute focused on the harms of AI on marginalized groups. So who's behind artificial intelligence technology and whose interests does it serve? And with such a big influence in our lives, how democratic is its use? Computer scientist Timnit Gebru talks to Al Jazeera. Timnit Gebru, thank you for talking to Al Jazeera. So to start with, let's, let's start right at the start and just set the scene a little bit for people who might not think about AI in everyday life. As the technology stands right now, how much are we using AI in every day-to-day -day life? How embedded is it right now for most people? I don't blame the public for being confused about what AI is. I think that many researchers like myself who have gotten our PhDs from AI labs studying AI are also confused because um, the, con the conception of AI that we see in pop culture is, in my view, what really, really shapes public opinion about what it is. And so it, it kind of makes me realize that pop culture has this huge um, power to shape people's thinking, right? So I think when people think of AI, they're thinking about Terminator kind of things, these robots that are kind of human-like um, and or are going to destroy the world or are, you know, or either good or bad, something like that. But that's really not what is being branded as quote-unquote AI right now. Um, anything you can think of that has um, any sort of data processed uh, and makes any sort of predictions about people, what Shoshana Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism, is based on what is currently being uh, branded as AI. Any sort of chatbot that you use, for instance, um, whether it is Alexa or Siri or um, I guess these are voice assistants or, or chatbots that a lot of um, 
companies use because they want to hire less um, call center operators or things like that. There could be um, some sort of quote unquote AI behind it. There is a lot of surveillance um, in in day-to-day life, whether it is face recognition or other kinds of uh, tracking that go on. um, And that that has some sort of AI in it. Um, There's recommendation engines uh, that that we we might not even know exist um, when we're watching videos on TikTok or something like that, or targeted advertisement that we get, or music selections um, that try to infer what kind of music we want to listen to next based on what we listened to before. So it's a very broad kind of uh, branding. And it wasn't always the case, but I think that, you know, there's always the language du jour that people use in order to kind of sell more products or hype hype up too many uh, of their products, in my opinion. So that is currently, in my view, what is being branded as artificial intelligence. That's really interesting because I guess when you think about using like even face recognition or getting a playlist recommended to you, as you say, I mean, I don't think about that being AI. I'm just like opening my phone. I guess that's something... You know, are, are people thinking about it as they use it? Or is this just, um, I guess, going under the radar as, as just the future of what it means to use technology? It's very interesting because there, in my opinion, there is this deliberate rebranding of, uh, of artificial intelligence that's going on so that um, people are confused by the capabilities of the systems that are being build as quote unquote artificial intelligence, right? So for instance, we even see these papers that say um, that computers can now identify skin cancer with superhuman performance, that they're, they're better than humans at doing this, which is really not true, right? So scientists themselves are engaging in this kind of hype and corporations um, themselves are engaging in this kind of hype. And what that does is instead of people thinking about a product that is created by human beings, uh, whether they're in corporations or um, government agencies or military uh, agencies like defense contractors, right, creating autonomous weapons and drones. So instead of thinking about people creating artifacts that we are then using, we think about quote unquote AI as this you know, some being that has its own agency. So what we do then is we don't ascribe the issues that we see to the people or corporations that are creating harmful products. We we start derailing the conversation, talking about whether you can create a moral being or you can impart your values into AI or whatever, because now we are kind of ascribing this responsibility away from the creators of these artifacts like machines, right? To some sort of, you know, uh, being that we are telling people have their own agency. Okay, so that's what AI is. What got you into your line of work, the ethics of artificial intelligence? Because it hasn't always been an easy path, it seems. Initially, I was just interested in the technical details. Face recognition is a, is something that is done under the computer vision um, umbrella um, or any other kind of thing that tries to make sense of um, images. It seemed really cool that you could um, infer certain things uh, based on videos and images. And that was what I was interested in. 
However, um, there was a confluence of a number of things. So first of all, when I went to graduate school at Stanford, I saw the stark, um, the lack of any Black person from anywhere in the world in graduate school, and especially in with respect to artificial intelligence, um, developing or researching these systems. So when I when I was at Stanford by then, I heard that they had literally only graduated one Black person with a PhD in computer science ever since the inception of the computer science department. And you can imagine the type of influence that this school has had on the world, right? You can imagine the kinds of companies that came out of there, including Google. Um, so I that was just such a shock to me. So I saw not only the, the, the lack of uh, Black people in the field, but also the lack of understanding of kind of what we go through and what systems of discrimination we go through in the U.S. and, and globally, really. Around the same time, I also started um, reading about um, systems that were uh, being uh, sold to the public and being used in very, very kind of scary ways. So for instance, there was a ProPublica article that showed that there was a company that purported to uh, de uh, determine the likelihood of people uh, committing a crime again. And unsurprisingly, of course, it was heavily biased against Black people. Um, at the same time, you know, I see the kind of drones and systems purporting to determine whether somebody's a terrorist or not, et cetera. And my own life experience told me, you know, who would be most likely to be harmed by those systems and who would be most likely to be developing those kinds of systems, right? So that was the, the time uh, where I started pivoting from purely studying how to develop these systems and doing research on the technical aspects of, of this field to being very worried about the, the way in which these systems are being developed and who they are negatively impacting. Learning about the, the existence of um, an algorithm, a model that purports to predict someone's likelihood of committing a crime again was such a huge shock for me. And by then it had existed for a long time. And in addition to, to that, um, you know, and so this system judges used um, for sentencing, for, for setting bail, um, along with other inputs. And there are other systems, other predictive policing systems. So one example of a predictive policing system was something called PredPol that actually um, the, the LA police, uh, LAPD were, were using. And thanks to a lot of activism from groups like Stop LAPD Spying, um, this um, software stopped being used by LAPD. Actually, my um, people in my field, statistician Christian Lom and um, scientist um, Will, William Isaac, did a study that actually reverse engineered PredPol and showed that, unsurprisingly, it pinpoints um, neighborhoods with black and brown people and says that these neighborhoods are crime hotspots. Uh, right, even if, um, for instance, um, uh, drug use isn't one example. If you look at the National Survey for Drug Use, it's pretty evenly distributed in, for instance, Oakland, right? 
But the, um, uh, these predictive policing systems like PredPol, they instead um, kind of pinpoint black and brown neighborhoods saying that these are um, hotspots. And why is that? Well, those of us who know history and the current realities of the US, we're not surprised by that mm. because these systems, they feed in, they have training data that are labeled and the training data does not depend on who commits a crime. It depends on who was arrested for committing a crime. And obviously that's going to be biased. I want to come back to, to the issues around the data that you put into AI and, and what the results are that you get in a minute. But let's go back to when you were hired at Google. What was it that you were hired to do? I was hired um, to do the kind of uh, work that I'm talking about with respect to um, analyzing the, the negative societal impacts of AI and working on all aspects of mitigating that, whether it is technical or non-technical or documentation. So I was a research scientist with um, you know, the freedom to set my own research agenda. Um, and I was also co-lead of the ethical AI team with my uh, former colleague, Meg Mitchell. And so our job there was also to create, to set um, the agenda of our small research team, which is again, focused on um, minimizing the negative societal impacts of AI. And as you say, there's a lack of diversity in the industry. You knew that, it, you know, you've known that since you, you got into this. So what were the realities then of, of going into this, this mega huge company as a woman of color trying to do that job? It was incredibly difficult from day one. I faced a lot of discrimination, um, whether it's sexism or racism from day one. I tried to um, raise the issues, but it was exhausting. You know, my, my colleague, Meg Mitchell and I, we were just so exhausted. <laughs> and doing research was basically, you know, working on our papers and discussing ideas felt like such a luxury because we were just always so exhausted by all the other issues that we were dealing with. Mm. You eventually put out a paper which led to your being dismissed, although Google says you resigned, but put that to the side. This, this paper looks at the biases being built into AI machines, basically reflecting the mistakes that, that humanity has made. Is perpetuating history a foregone conclusion when we, when we talk about AI? Or is there another path? I, I, I always believe that we have to believe that there is another path. Um, and this comes to uh, back to the way in which we discuss AI as just being its own thing, rather than uh, an artifact, a tool that is created by human beings that are um, in corporations or um, educational facilities or other institutions, right? So as long as we have to know that we control what we build and for and who we build it for and what it's used for. So there is definitely another path, but for, for that other path to exist, we have to um, uncover the issues with the current path that we're going on and, and remedy them and also invest in terms of research in those other paths. So for instance, um, this paper that I put out called On the Dangers of Stochastic Parrots, it um, talks about this huge race that is going on right now on developing what are called large language models. And so these uh, models are, are trained on massive amounts of data from the internet, scraped from the internet, right? And so you and I are not getting paid for the content that we put out on the internet that, that is being um, scraped to 
you know, train these models. Something just just to make it really simple. I mean, something that I hadn't even considered. What you're talking about is you know giving AI all of the information of the internet, and of course, it's going to you know spew out some of the the worst parts of the internet, which are you know often predominant. But if we give it a smaller data set, or if we curate the data then we're going to get something that might be more helpful for people. Is that kind of putting it too simply? No, actually, that is one of, you know, we discuss so many different kinds of issues in our paper. And one of the um, issues we discuss is exactly what you mentioned in terms of curating data um, and, and using, you know, large um, uncurated data from the internet with the assumption that size gives you diversity, right? And so what we say is size does not give you diversity. And we detail so many ways in which that's not the case. And one of the um, suggestions that we make is to make sure that we curate our data and we understand our data. And if we believe that the data set that we are using to train these models is too large, too daunting, too overwhelming for us to understand it, document it, and curate it, then that means we shouldn't be using that data, right? And so this is this is kind of one of the things that we're talking about. Another thing that I thought was really fascinating um, that I guess we don't consider on our daily lives is that at a macro level, the funding for a lot of the technological advances that trickle down to us begin either with the military or with these massive tech giants that, you know, can they have our best interests at heart? This is um, precisely uh, what I talk about, too, with um, the founding of um, our new, my new institute, the Distributed AI Research Institute, right? So a lot of, when you look at history um, in AI, whether it is things like machine translation or self-driving cars, right? Um, self-driving cars are a good example. They were very much funded by DARPA, a defense um, funding agency, right? So it's not because they're interested in, uh, on accessibility for, for disabled people, right? It, they're interested primarily in autonomous warfare. So how can we assume that something that starts with that goal and that funding insight will end up being something different. Um, and so I often give this example of, you know, when people talk about AI for social good, right? They talk about kind of reorienting some of these things that we already built for quote unquote social good. Whereas for me, it's kind of saying that, okay, we built this tank first, and then we try to figure out how to use this tank for something other than warfare. Maybe we can use it for farming. Maybe we can use it for something else. But the thing is we, we already, made the tank, right? We designed the systems so that they become a tank, like for a specific um, um, goal and outcome, which is warfare. So that's exactly how we've been designing our technological systems. If you look at the history of AI, um, when it's funded by the government, when they fund um, basic research in this space, and when they have all of these collaborations with large tech companies, when you look at um, really prestigious top schools like MIT, they're huge military contractors, right? The Lincoln Lab. So I think that as human beings, we have to look at ourselves and say, what are we building and where are we going and why are we building this thing? And we can have a different path. You mentioned governments there. I'm wondering, in your line of work, have you seen governments use data, you know, in a way that that if we all knew about, we would be we would be upset to find out about? Like, 
are, are governments in on uh, using data for AI in ways that perhaps we, we might not be aware of? There are, you know, all sorts of face recognition related uses by law enforcement, for example. Um, and recently, um, my colleague Joy uh, Bulamini, my um, co-author and friend, uh, who also heads um, the Algorithmic Justice League, had a series of videos and, and op-eds and other educational material describing ID.me, right? This is um, the IRS is um, was asking people to submit basically biometric information. So in order to log in and, and file taxes and, and do all sorts of, and get all sorts of government services, they were using this private company, ID.me, um, as a verification mechanism. So then this company has your, your biometric, this private company has your biometric information. Um, and this is getting proliferated everywhere. Like if you look at um, in airports, um, they're now using all sorts of, you know, face recognition related things to, to verify um, that it's you. Um, and I don't even know exactly who they're using and how this is getting proliferated. So every day we're finding out about new uses that we never knew about, we never voted on, we never mm. learned about, we were never educated on. The worst example for me is Clearview. So um, Clearview is this um, company that has been under fire for using so many people's uh, face data from the internet, for, for example, I believe Facebook, um, and um, you know, training all of these uh, automated facial analysis tools that are being used by law enforcement and all sorts of groups around the world. And it's been sued for a number of things, right? Like, for example, their use of this kind of data. But then you also find out that they have all these partnerships with all sorts of governmental agencies. For people, um, I so because I think people will be watching this at home going, oh my gosh, I did give my biometric information or, you know, I, I do get scanned at the airport all the, all the time. For people watching at home who, who are concerned about how their data is being used, are concerned about, uh, you know, how that's being fed into artificial intelligence and, you know, the whole thing. What can people at home do? Well, what do you do? Do you, do you avoid certain things or certain places? Or, you know, I'm just trying to think of some, some helpful things at home for people who are watching going, oh, no, you know, I need to do something. In my opinion, you know, the biggest thing we can do is that we need to advocate for regulation that puts the onus on companies to make sure that they keep people safe, to make sure that they don't, they, that they prove to us before they put products out there that they're not harmful. The issue right now is that we're assuming that the onus is on the public, on each one of us. And how many, how many times can you do this, right? Like every single thing you click on, every single thing you use, you have to make sure that, you know, you have the privacy settings, right, et cetera. And I think it just, you know, people say privacy by design, right? Or um, it, we should have something like, uh, I guess, Sorrel Fiddler was saying fairness by design or something like that, like justice by design, right? We, where the onus is on the designers and implementers and not on the public mm, um, mm. To, to, to go on their daily lives and make sure that they spend all their days reading every terms of service and making sure that they click on, you know, certain things and not others. We've talked a lot about, um, about, you know, big tech companies, about the vast amounts of data being collected. Is AI inherently anti-democratic? 
It, that's a very interesting question. Um, so there are there is a segment of um, people in AI that um, whose goal is to create what's called an um, artificial general intelligence. What does it mean to create artificial general intelligence? It, it means that you're trying to create a, a, this being that knows everything, um, can automate any task. Um, so if you're a corporation, then you can have this thing that does all your tasks for you that you don't have to pay, um, and that you don't have to care about, right? And so that kind of goal, I find extremely strange and inherently undemocratic. To me personally, any aspect of AI, I see it as a tool, as a tool that we can build um, for specific needs of communities. So if you build a tool based on the needs of specific communities, so for example, I had talked about, um, uh, you know, people, the, the Tehiku, I believe, radio station in New Zealand, right, using a language technology for revitalization of the Maori language, right? And so that to me is, is, an, is definitely a democratic goal. It is a goal that is allowing people to, um, use their language and culture after it has been beaten out of them because of colonization. So if we decide that that is what we're going to do, we can do that and we can create our funding structures, um, design our systems and um, processes accordingly. So again, you know, I think that there is a world in which we can build AI tools that are beneficial to people, but that means we have to do a rethinking of where the money comes from and how we do our research and development process. However, there is this segment of people in AI who have this weird goal of creating artificial general intelligence, which I believe is inherently undemocratic. Timnit Gebru, thank you for talking to Al Jazeera. Thank you for having me.